And so I want to argue this morning that the glory of God in its highest form is displayed right here in the birth of Christ. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Yes, and amen. I picked the best day to wear a fleece and a sweater. (laughs) Well, Merry Christmas. Good morning. Martin Luther wrote these words, uh, reminding us what our posture should be as we consider Christmas. He said, let us not flutter too high, but remain by the manger and the swaddling clothes of Christ in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We get to celebrate grace and truth this morning. We get to celebrate the glory of God who has come to dwell among us. And yet, in the midst of that, we want to have the same posture, and that is the posture we're going to have this morning that Martin Luther exhorts us to have, the posture of not fluttering too high, but dwelling low remaining in a place of humility, in a place of reverence, in a place of awe as we consider who Christ is and how he's come. This Advent season, we collectively hold our breath as we anticipate the arrival of Christ, just as, maybe just as the angels waited with anticipation to announce the glorious good news that we just read about. Today, we're going to see the modest circumstances by which our dear Savior was born into, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we open the service this morning, how God's glory in the highest is best displayed in the humble gift of his son, Emmanuel, God with us. So we're going to do four, four different aspects of this text before us. We're going to look at four things, and, and we'll go through these. So if you're taking note or you mentally check off where we're going to be in the sermon, we're going to see first a governmental decree those never happen nowadays, uh, governmental decrees. We're going to see a graceful delivery. We're going to see a gospel declaration, and we're going to see a glorious day. And it's glorious that the sun is now out, and hopefully that breeze will continue. So we'll start with a governmental decree. Look again at verse one. It says, in those days, a decree went out. Luke, the historian, roots his historical account in, you could say, secular history. He gives us a real, real world frame of reference. Now, for those of you who are uninitiated or new to Christianity, the Bible is not a storybook of spiritual folklore or these make-believe religious fairy tales, much like Aesop's fables, where there's a moral imperative at the end of a nice little children's story. That's not what the Bible is about. Luke actually wrote his gospel to another Christian named Theophilus, and he wrote his account, he said, to give you certainty regarding the things that you believe, the things you've been taught. And sadly, today we live in a day and age where many people are pushing away from the Christian faith. It's called the ex-evangelical movement, 
where people are deconstructing their faith and questioning and doubting their faith. And the answer that people are, are giving those folks is move away from the church. The church has hurt you, so move away from the church. Move away from the Bible. Move away from truth and just find your own truth. Discover your own religion or your own idea. And yet Theophilus needed a more mature Christian to encourage him, to disciple him. And that's what we need as well. If you're here today and you're, you're deconstructing, you're questioning in your faith, you're doubting your salvation or you're doubting the truth of Christianity, the best thing for you to do is not to move away from the church. And if the church has harmed you, that's a, a poor representation and an unbiblical representation of what the church should be. And I'm sorry if you've experienced hurt or trauma in the church, but the last thing we do is push away from Christians and away from the church. No, we lean into the Bible. We lean into fellowship. We ask and look for older, mature believers to come alongside us. And those of us who are advanced in our maturity or advanced in our years, we are to come alongside those who are younger in the faith. And that's what Luke does. Luke wants to give Theophilus certainty in what he believes. And so Luke would say, hey, this is actually an event that happened in real time. So some people would look at these names, Caesar Augustus, and they would say, is there a Caesar Augustus? They would look at Quirinius. Was there really a guy named Quirinius? Was there really a census? And we look at history and we can be encouraged that yes, these things actually took place. Caesar Augustus was the official Roman emperor from 27 BC to AD 14. And this is a glorious time where there was very little war, a lot of peace and prosperity. And a census was conducted every 14 years. You would conduct a census for two reasons, for military purposes, to, to see who was of age to fight for Rome. And secondly, we know that we're always, um, even through the years, there's two constants, there's death and what? Yeah, you guys said that with a lot of excitement this morning, <laughs> taxes. And that was the second reason that you would give a census. It was to tax the people. Uh, and so in Judea, no one in, in uh, Judaism, no one in Judea would be eligible for military service. So a census performed here was literally for tax reasons. And so the Jews were not happy about this. Acts 5.37 says a revolt raised up during this particular census. So we have Caesar Augustus, one of the, uh, arguably the greatest emperor, even uh, arguably greater than Julius Caesar. And then Quirinius was governor right around this time. And some skeptics would say, well, that's a different time period. The, the, the timing is wrong. We're not going to go into all those details today. Uh, but what we do know is the census was ordered during this time period, around this frame, time frame, and it would have taken many years to compile the data. So the years add up, the years are correct. It's historically proven. What a glorious truth. Jesus is not a fable. He's not folklore. He was born in time, space, and place. Caesar Augustus was counting heads, but in ordering this census, he unknowingly fulfilled ancient Old Testament prophecy. If you're taking note, you want to jot down and read this later, Micah 5.2. You see, Bethlehem was specifically prophesied uh, in Micah 5.2 as being the future birthplace of the Messiah. It says in Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're overlooked, you're little, you're not important, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, if the 
uh, Caesar, if the governor wasn't in compliance and Caesar didn't order this census, then Jesus may have been born in Nazareth. That's where his parents, so to speak, were from. But the Roman government compelled all the citizens to return to your home, to the place where your extended families resided. Church, isn't it wonderful to know that our God is a greater authority than government? That needs a hearty amen in 2021. (laughs) That God can use even the most absurd intrusion in our lives or interference. God can use that for his own ends. We're going to learn more about God and government on January 2nd. That's a little teaser as we look at Romans chapter 13 and see different spheres of influence and uh, what the Bible says about government. So I encourage you to come out on January 2nd. Caesar Augustus, uh, was, it was said of him that when he came to Rome, it was a city of brick. And when he left, it was a city of marble. He did some great things, but arguably the greatest thing he ever did was to order the census that would move, compel Joseph to go back to his hometown of Bethlehem. John Calvin says, God employs a wicked tyranny for the redemption of his people. While Caesar executed the commission, he is unknown to himself, God's herald, to call Mary to the place which God had appointed. So for Mary and for Joseph, that's Bethlehem. It's known as the city of bread. Uh, So Joseph has left Bethlehem. He's relocated to Nazareth, but his extended family's in Bethlehem, so he's going back there for the census. And this city, Bethlehem, is the city where King David, the greatest, arguably the greatest king of Israel, was from. And if you were to travel from Nazareth back to Bethlehem, it's around 80 miles. So some of you who have family in Lakeland, or if you avoid Lakeland, <laughs> uh, you know that the distance from here to Lakeland is around 75, 80 miles. And that's about the distance. But just consider this. They're heading back from Nazareth to Bethlehem. No buses, no light rail, no Uber, not even a back seat, not even a bicycle. They're walking and maybe riding a donkey. So we read here, it says in verse three, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. So Mary is betrothed to be married to Joseph, and she's pregnant. We're not going to get into that backstory this morning. But essentially, the incarnation, what we believe about Christ's uh, birth or the incarnation of Christ is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Mary conceived Jesus. And in the Garden of Eden, God had cursed the serpent and foretold that Eve's offspring, that the seed singular, would crush Satan's head even as he struck the Messiah's heel. So many people are unsure. And so They don't know how did this happen. We're not going to have conjecture, but many people believe the sin nature is passed down through the man, but Mary's DNA is all that was needed for Jesus's incarnation. Uh, what What is important is that the fullness of the Godhead was dwelling bodily. The baby Jesus was growing in his virgin mother's womb, and he was truly God and truly man. Now, the time had come for Mary to give birth, So the second point I want to look at is a graceful delivery. Look at verses six and seven with me. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger 
because there is no place for them in the end. All right. There is a lot of undoing that we need to do here. First of all, if you ever invite me to your house and you have a manger scene and there are wise men there at the scene, some of you know I have a little bit of controversy that if I show up at your house, I'm going to say, hey, I love your manger scene. And then when you go use the restroom, I'm going to hide the three wise men. I'm going to separate them and I'm going to put a little sticky note that says two years later <laughs> on the wise men. And by the way, there, we don't know if there were three. There could have been many. We know there are three gifts. And all of those gifts are so appropriate, not only for the birth of a king, but also for a Messiah who would die. Now, there's a lot of undoing in our, our cultural thinking when we think about what happened here. So what we don't read, just for a minute, get your eyes in the text. What we don't read about is that the night they arrived in Bethlehem, they went door to door, knocking on doors, and some guy opened the little slot, the innkeeper, and he looked out the window and he said, you can't stay here at the hotel. And he slid the, the door shut and, and poor Joseph had to find a cave or some barn. And then that's where uh, Jesus was born that first night. Uh, and so that is not what we read in the text. And I just want to clarify this, not to get on a, a high horse or to, to argue, uh, but I want to make sure we understand what's happening here. Notice verse six says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So we could argue it wasn't the night they arrived and feverishly she's starting to be effaced and it's time to quickly give birth. We don't see that. We said while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So there was long, a long enough time for them to find appropriate shelter or turn to, remember, a family member. They're going to be with family. Now it says that Mary is with her betrothed or her fiance and we learn that he's from the line of King David. And so they're returning to the village of his origin, and in Middle Eastern culture, historical memories are important and they're long. And in such a world, Joseph could have told people, here's who I am, and most of the people in town, most of the homes in town would be open to him. So it wasn't that he couldn't find any shelter, or he's literally the worst husband in the world, and he couldn't find any room for his wife, and so that's what happened. See, Bethlehem's located in the center of Judea, and we learned from Luke chapter 1 that Elizabeth and Zechariah live actually in the vicinity. They're nearby. They're in the hill country. So if Joseph had failed to find shelter in Bethlehem, they could have just traveled a few extra miles to stay with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not only that, but um, the shepherds we're going to read about in a minute, they left the night of Jesus' birth praising God and rejoicing. And if they could have offered better hospitality than what had already been extended to Jesus by Mary and Joseph, they would have taken an opportunity to do that. So what's happening here? What, what, what are we to know? Well, if you circle or look at the word in here in verse 7, it's only used in two places in the New Testament. It's used here, and it's also used by Jesus in Luke twenty-two eleven, And that's the word that we get or we translate upper room or guest room. Uh, remember, the upper room is where the disciples had the Last Supper together in. That's not the exact same room because that's in Jerusalem. Now, in this same gospel account, Luke uses a word in chapter 10 to describe the place where the Good Samaritans uh, had brought, the Good Samaritan had brought uh, the person who was beaten. And it, that is the word, a different word, where when we think of an inn or a commercial inn, a hotel, that is the word that he uses. Totally different word. The word that Luke uses here for inn is completely different. So what's happening in this story? Well, 
we have to get to know what the homes were like in Palestine. Very different than our homes here today. Today, if you live in a home versus a condo, uh, Southwest Florida, we have garages. Most of us don't use the garages for cars. We use them for storage or golf carts. And we typically have a master suite. We typically have two or three uh, bedrooms. Maybe our kids are there or we have guest rooms or a study. By the way, men, uh, I hear about this man cave business. We need to move away from the man cave and more to the study. Can, can we make that a thing? Getting back to the manly study where there's books and Bibles. I don't know. That's, let's get away from the man cave. Um, but see, the, and we have a mud room and we have a kitchen and we have a living room and we have bathrooms. Very different in Palestine, in Judea. The homes that Joseph and Mary were familiar with, very different. They essentially had two rooms. And one of those rooms they would have exclusively for guests. The main room was the family room. And this is the room where you cooked, where you ate, where you slept, can you imagine? And where you lived. At the end of that main room, next to the door, often there was a few feet lower. If it was built on a hill, it was pitched down. And there would have been a lower part of the home where the family cow, the donkey, and a few sheep would be driven into this lower part of the home. Almost a, a, a spot designated apart from the home. Uh, the owners would not keep the animals necessarily outside because they'd be stolen, they could be attacked, and so they'd keep them in the same house. Sometimes the animals would provide warmth. I wouldn't be able to do it. They'd keep me up all night, but that's what they did. Now, every morning, the owner would often drive the animals out and tie them up in the courtyard or out in the field. So mangers literally were the animal feeding troughs often dug out in the lower section of the living room of the home. In fact, in 1 Samuel 28, we read that Saul was the guest. He stayed in the guest room of a medium and she took the fatted calf in the house. That's where the fatted calf would have been. It would have been down in that lower section of the room. Uh, in Judges 11, we, we see a similar situation with a guy named Jephthah. So the animals weren't necessarily out in a detached barn or out in a stable. So Mary, I just want you to know, Mary and Joseph weren't kicked to the curb. They weren't hunkered down in a cave or a barn. No, they were received into a private home. The word for in is that word for the guest room. So they went to stay with family. There wasn't room in the guest room. And so the family had to make a fly decision and have them stay in that lower part of the home. And Jesus was laid in the manger, the feeding trough for the animals. So there is, I just want you to know, there is hospitality here. There is grace in the midst of unwanted circumstances, but note with me still the simplicity and the humility of it all. The king of all creation is laid in a manger in the little overlooked town of Bethlehem. We see the power and the might of God born as a helpless baby, fully reliant upon his mother. Graceful delivery indeed. Well, let's look at our third section, a gospel declaration. It says in verse eight, in the same region, so it's in the same area, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So we know this is evening. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now, if you look at Bethlehem in those days, Bethlehem surrounded by fields, perfect for grazing. You guys remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? You guys remember that story? These would have been possibly the exact fields that Ruth was going and gleaning out of 
the wealthy and graceful Boaz. Gleaning from Boaz's supply. If you've studied Ruth, Boaz is a great picture of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. And so I think it's appropriate, it's fitting that, that these may have been the actual fields. However, Micah chapter four, verse eight, gives us some fascinating insights. So jot this verse down, Micah 4.8. We all know Micah 5.2, but 4.8 is very fascinating. It says, O you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. You might say, okay, that's random. Well, what does what uh, Micah mean by the tower of the flock? Genesis 35, 19 through 21 tells us that uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath or Bethlehem. It says Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. And it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel, that's Jacob, journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So just stay with me for a minute. Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, dies. So he buries her near Bethlehem Ephrathah. And Jacob then settles near the tower of Eder. Today, there is a tower only about a thousand steps or so from the outskirts of Bethlehem. It's on a hill. And that tower is known as Migdal Eder or the Tower of Eder. And according to the Jewish Mishnah and scholars, the hilltop tower over time became a place where shepherds would go and they'd climb up the tower. It's not super tall. But they'd climb the tower and they'd be able to look over the valley where their sheep would reside in the field below. Generations later, this was Migdal Eder, the Tower of Eder, was believed to be, and I find this so fascinating, it was believed to be the place where the Jerusalem Temple Passover lambs would be watched, would be examined, and kept by specially trained shepherds. So the sheep in the fields are being protected by the shepherds, but as they were growing, they'd eventually be inspected by the shepherds, and they'd either be certified to be approved for slaughter on Passover, or released for common use back into the community. So I find it fascinating, don't you, that possibly in the fields of Boaz, the shepherds, perhaps the very ones keeping watch over the Passover lambs, are the ones who receive the most important news ever delivered from heaven to earth. Did you guys look with me what it does not say? It says in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say there were in the same region scribes and Pharisees keeping watch over their religious rituals and their scrolls. It doesn't say in the same region kings and princes were keeping watch over their palaces and peasants. It doesn't say in the same region there were wealthy and influential politicians keeping watch over their constituents and their riches. No, see, shepherds were the outcasts of society. They were the ones you'd never expect to receive the angelic news. John MacArthur says shepherds were near the bottom of the social ladder. They were uneducated, unskilled, increasingly viewed in the post-New Testament era as those who were dishonest, unreliable, unsavory characters, so much so that shepherds were not allowed to testify in court. God allows the angels to come or commissions the angels to come and declare the good news that needs to be repeated to others. And yet, who does he choose? 
He doesn't choose the high and lofty, the well-known or the important. He chooses those who aren't even qualified to give testimony in court. Unimportant shepherds, the greatest announcement ever made. And notice who gives the announcement. It's, it's an angel. In fact, when we read in verse 13 about the heavenly host, uh, that is not a host of a party wearing a suit jacket by any means. It, it doesn't mean an angelic choir of women, um, but it literally means an angel army. These are warrior angels. And so when the angels reveal themselves to the shepherds, I don't want you to have in your mind those cute cherubs that float around in the nursery and shoot people with arrows. And that's not the idea whatsoever. These look like dangerous warriors with war in their eyes. This is a war announcement. And that's why in verse 12, the angel says, fear not. When someone says, don't be afraid, it means you're afraid. And so the word angel here is literally the word messenger. He's come with a message. What is the message? Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not. Why? For behold, pay attention. I bring you good news. Literally in the Greek, this is I evangelize you. I'm here to evangelize you. Here's the good news. It's great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He says, it's good news. It's gospel. It produces great joy. There's a reason to rejoice. He says, it's for all the people. No one is excluded or beyond the reach of this good news. You see, these messengers come not with a typical message. This is the message. This is the gospel. And I want you to hear it this morning. That though God had created a world in which all things were good, man rebelled, man fell, and sin entered the world and corrupted all of creation. Death came through sin. And though the law of God, the law of Moses revealed sin, it didn't remove sin. It was powerless to, to cleanse us. It only covered us like the animal skins that God graciously provided for Adam and Eve. But death was required. And the death of an animal year after year after year as a sacrifice, this was a temporary propitiation, a temporary covering. But God sent his own lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. His own lamb would be slain on your behalf. He'd be slain for all. The Savior wasn't on his way. They're declaring the Savior is here. Emmanuel, God with us, is now born. Unto you, born this day, in the city of Bethlehem, the city of bread, comes the one who would be the bread of life, given for all to receive. The King of kings, the Messiah, the Kurios, the sovereign, supreme Lord, who possesses all ownership and uncontested power. He's before all things in him, all things hold together. He's now stooped to the lowest to become not only a man, but a child, a baby. This is the gospel. This is Christ, our savior. And they're declaring this good news. That needs some excitement. I, I get excited about that, that Christ has come, that, that we uh, have salvation. And that brings us to our fourth and final point, that it's a glorious day. Notice verse 12, this will be a sign for you. Here's the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And it says, and suddenly there was with the angel. So this is just one angel giving them this news. He's enough to invoke fear. But then it says, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, suddenly there was. 
praising God, and together, corporately, they declared glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So notice with me that the rest of the angel army appears, begins to praise God together, and they said, this is your sign, shepherds. And what was the sign? Well, the sign was not a palace. The sign wasn't a throne. The sign was not a baby wrapped in purple, wrapped in fine linens, lying in an ivory or gold cradle. That wasn't the sign. The sign was not a glowing halo born over the baby, though a lot of our art in medieval times displays that. That would have been easy. Where's the baby with the halo? There he is, right? No, to find a baby born was not a sign. There may have been many baby, baby, young babies or children around Bethlehem in the census. To find a baby bundle wrapped wouldn't stand out as a sign. Even moms today are smart enough to bundle wrap your babies. But notice, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. That's unique. You see, Elizabeth... Her pregnancy was unique. She was an elderly, barren woman who had conceived. That was the visible sign for Mary. The angel Gabriel said, that will be a sign for you. Mary's own pregnancy was not normal. She was a virgin. So the sign for the shepherds was not normal. This is a baby wrapped and lying in a feeding trough for animals. Swaddling cloths were, if you're wondering, they were narrow strips of cloth that you would wrap around an infant and they were believed to protect the child's internal organs. And that custom of wrapping infants in, uh, in cloths is still practiced in uh, Middle Eastern countries today. Uh, when you flash forward, I can't help but think of the ceremonial wrapping of Jesus's body after his, uh, his crucifixion and before his burial. So the angels in unison, notice they cry out, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. I want to argue this morning that the visible, manifest, displayed presence of God's holiness. Remember, we began the service this morning saying the angels declare holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his what? Glory, Glory, not his holiness. So his glory is the manifest demonstration, display of his holiness. It's tangible. It's recognizable. So he's holy, and the whole earth is filled with a a display of his holiness, his glory. And so I want to argue this morning that the glory of God in its highest form is displayed right here in the birth of Christ. This is where God's favor, God's wholeness, God's pleasure rests on those who receive the gift of his son. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, creation glorifies God, but not so much as redemption. He, by his life and death on the cross, will glorify God's attributes, his justice, holiness, mercy, and wisdom, as they were never glorified before. God's glory is displayed in its greatest, highest form in the picture and person of his son. Now, as we consider these things this morning, we consider our own lives, we realize that God's glory is best displayed in the humble gift of his son. In this world, we are fallen and we seek glory. We seek weight and worth and power and influence and recognition 
that the world will masquerade as true glory. The world will define glory as it's got to be bigger, it's got to be better, it's got to be greater, it's got to be more substantial. It is not okay to get that phone and say, well, it, it only has one new camera. It's got to have all the bells and whistles. It's got to be greater. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be better. And yet we see in this text the humility and the frailty of God as a baby. We see the manger. We see the shepherds. We see the simplicity and the meekness. The world says what? Flaunt it. Exploit it. Take it. But true glory is not found in trying to become greater, not in ascension, but in condescension in making ourselves less. The scripture says, whoever exalts himself, you guys know the rest of the verse? Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians 2 says uh, that, that Christ came into the world, that he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. See, true glory is found here in the lowly manger throne. J.C. Ryle goes on, he says, here at the manger, we see the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had enough reason to wonder. But, to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest. He says, this is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable. It is unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. Through his life of suffering, as well as his death, he has obtained eternal redemption for us. All through his life, Ryle says, all through his life, he was made poor for our sakes from the hour of his birth to the hour of his death and through his poverty were made rich. This morning, church, we serve a God who doesn't overlook the outcasts. He's not too busy to trifle with the unimportant. You ever met someone like that? You meet them and they're not impressed with you. They don't know who you are. It doesn't matter to them who you are and they just, they treat you in a, in a condescending way. And yet our God this morning has sent his son who is a great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a savior who doesn't break the bruised reed, who doesn't snuff out the wick that's about to smolder out. We have a king whose favor rests on those who receive him. He says, this is good news for those who his favor rests upon. And it's those, he says in the text, it's those who please him. Those who have received his son are those who are in right standing with the Father. This morning, you may not have received Christ as Savior. We're going to conclude with a song, and then I'll be available over here near the One Day Frames store. And I want to encourage you uh, to make your way over here if you've never received Christ. We don't often do an invitation, but I'll be available to pray with you and just to encourage you in your faith. If you've never repented of your sins, turn from your sins turned away from them and said, I'm a sinner. I recognize that this morning. I need to receive the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. I want to give you that opportunity today as we close with this song. But see, the song we're going to close with is a little familiar and a little not. The song we're going to close with is a song familiar to us. The hymn is, O Come All Ye Faithful. I'm sure you've heard of it. We're going to sing a song called, O Come All You Unfaithful. 
And this is one of my favorite hymns that we sing here. You guys have your lyrics, open them and look with me at what we're about to sing. And this is an invitation for all of us to come, to come this morning to the lowly manger throne, to come this morning with all of our sin, with all of our baggage, with all of our rebellion, whatever excuses you're putting up in your mind. Well, I was, I was born a Christian. Well, I was raised in the church. Well, I was confirmed as a child. And let's let all of those excuses go out the door this morning. There is no door. We're under a tent. Let's let all of those excuses kind of waft away this morning. Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted Christ? Eternity hangs in the balance. I implore you to come. Listen to these words we're about to sing. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Come, bitter and broken. Come, with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. And maybe you're here today and you're guilty and hiding. There's no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the lamb who was given. He was slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing. Come, he's the offering. Come, see what your God has done. This morning, this Christmas, God invites us to come, to come behold the Son. Today I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all people, which is for you. Christ is born. Have you received Christ the Lord as your Savior? If you have this Christmas, we invite you to repeat the sounding joy, to tell others of this glorious good news. We have the privilege this Advent season to, with the angels, declare, to tell others the gospel. And so may we turn our hearts this morning to Christ in the manger. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Amen? Let's stand together, and I'm going to invite the worship team forward. As the music begins, I'll be available. If you've never uh, repented of your sins, trusted Christ, I want to encourage you in your faith and begin some next steps with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your dear son, your only son, the son that you love, to take our place at Calvary. Jesus was born of a virgin, born as a, as a child, lived obediently, fully obedient to the law of God, laid down his life to take our place, to pay the penalty that we deserved. So Jesus, we thank you for dying for us and yet for rising again triumphantly. And Lord, though we are celebrating your first advent this week, we look in advance to your second coming, your second advent, when you come in power and in great glory. We love you, Lord. We worship you. And now we sing, being reminded to come. Lord, we worship you with the saints in history and around the world this morning, declaring Christ has come. In your name we pray, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.